Welcome to the Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. On tonight's episode, we will continue our discussion of the DeFeo murders, the real story behind Amityville Horror. Was this just murder, or was this something from beyond? We will also discuss the Warrens and their hand in the Amityville Horror series. This is Scarlet Tavern. So, as we had last time, uh, my dad has joined us for part two, um, mm-hmm. and I want to kick this off by having you guys get to know him and his law enforcement experience a little better, because, I mean, that's really what we're using him for here, is his law enforcement experience. So um, You don't get paid extra. Yeah. You don't get paid extra for this. Yeah. What, what, what are we saying? We're salaried. Get out of here. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Um, and with all of this, we are not going to mention the department. We are not. We will say Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will not mention the department and all of that. Um, so. What was your title? I was a road deputy slash field training officer. Okay. What was your job like? Um, some days chaotic. Uh, some days <clears throat> uh, exciting. There was, I mean, it was just a whole gamut of things, but it was, I mean, I was living my dream, you know, doing what I knew I was going to do since I was 10. So, What was the most rewarding part of being in law enforcement? The most rewarding part. I mean, it sounds so cliche. Getting the bad guy off the streets. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to go out there and I want to save the world and I want to make a difference. And the reality is every rookie goes in with that attitude. You know, I'm, I'm going to be the super cop and and I'm going to save the world and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was for me, the most rewarding was legitimately helping those true victims, you know, because there was, I mean, let's, let's face it, there were some that would, would make up BS just because they were mad at so-and-so or whatever, but it was um, when you found that, that legit victim that, you know, whether it be fraud or theft or whatever, being able to take it to full conviction, that, that was pretty cool. Well, so you you say every cop goes in there wanting to save the world, and I think the three of us can agree that that's the thought. But and if you think about it, 
every time you go to a call and you help somebody, you are saving that person's world. Yeah. So looking at it from a different point of view, you are saving the world. Each individual day for each individual person that you help, you are saving their world. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think early on, you know, like I said, you, you have this grandiose idea and Caleb, like you said, it's, it's, you know, in, it becomes individualized. So I was fortunate that I had some great FTOs, some great um, partners, uh, great mentors throughout the sheriff's office. Shout out uh, Terry if you listen to this. Yep, Terry. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll have to tell her to give listen to this one. Who's um, Terry? His own partner, partner, the longest partner oh. we had. Started out as my dispatcher. And to give you, the listener, an idea of the um, synchronicity that she and I had, as a dispatcher, we ran two channels as a department. You would do your normal calls on one channel. You would do all your warrant searches and all that kind of stuff on your second channel. So when I would go out to a call and I would respond and I would make contact, I would say that I was Y Yankee, which means I'm okay. I'm switching to channel two. She used to be the channel two dispatcher. The mm. minute I would check on channel two, she's rattling off all of the information that I would have asked for. And we just, we had that, that connection and that, transferred over to when she came onto the road and she and I we were never apart she had a call I was there if I had a call she was there we knew what each other was going to do that kind of thing so you know having partners like that having mentors like Raphael who's not around anymore unfortunately um, yeah unfortunately you learn I, I was able to learn to narrow that thinking down and and not be so generalized and go okay how can i make a positive difference in this person's life and and my dad worked in the hood for his entire career same area for almost 20 years um do you ever regret anything about taking your job um, ever regret becoming a police officer? Yeah, no. no. I mean, I I joke around and say, man, I should have, I should have stuck with fire department, or I should have stuck with this, or I should have stuck with that. But yeah, but we can be lazy now, just like fire. Right. So. Exactly. <laughs> I couldn't be fire. fire. I couldn't. I could never be a fire department because I. I just don't have a love of golf like every other firefighter I've ever met. Who, uh, my entire time, my first base in Portugal, it seemed like every firefighter when I was just driving on set, working Saturdays when nothing was happening, mm-hmm. I just see the fire department would just be out practicing their golf swing. And I, yep. They never will let me teach them though, even though I, golf is the one sport I actually trained and practiced and play even um, though i have an aversion to all organized sports did no, you so i've never had any regrets 
No. Did you feel that you made a difference in the community? Why or why not? Um, that's kind of a double-sided coin. Yes, I felt like I made a difference most days because you would get that feedback from different um, people in that neighborhood or in that, that part of the community that appreciated what you were doing and that kind of thing. But, well, those that know, know your work in the hood, your work in the drug section, there's no win in it, man. There's not. So... Um, that's the other side of that coin. You you go out and you make these arrests and you're not even finished with the paperwork and you look up and there's the guy walking down the street. So, uh, but for the most part, yeah, I, I think I did. Um, why did you decide to make law enforcement your career? Um, well, like I said numerous times, it was something I knew I was going into at about 10 years old. Um, my father started out in law enforcement in the Air Force before he transitioned into being a loadmaster. Uh, my uncle was a uh, police officer in Pennsylvania, so I grew up in that. That's that's what I knew and I just knew that that's what I was put on this earth to do it's I mean it's just one of those things you know um, and I've said then I think I told you um, last week we were talking about that and I said that there are two types of police officers ones that are born to do it and ones that want to do it Mm-hmm. I just knew that I was born to do it. So certain aspects of the job just came easy. So, um, How long were you with law enforcement? Um, I was just shy of 20 years. So. Two different departments, one in the jail, one in on the road. What was your main goal as a deputy? This says police officer, but you were a deputy sheriff. Correct. Sheriff's deputy. My main goal, go home at the end of the night. That was my main goal. You were little, you know, so every call that I went to, um, you were, that was in the back of my mind. You know, I've, I've got this little guy at the house. By the time I got on the road, you were four, three-ish. So every traffic stop, every hot call, every, uh, you know, person with a gun, whatever it was, you're dealing with that situation because you have to deal with it. But in the back of your mind, you're going, motherfucker, I'm making it home at the end of the day. I don't, I don't care what's going to happen. 
I'm going home to see that little guy. So that was my main goal. Um, I want to see a little Caleb. I'll pay money. I'll pay money to see it. In let me find the pictures. They're not here. In your opinion, in your opinion, is crime frequency and intensity better or worse now than when you were a police officer? I think we can all answer that one. Way worse. It is. It's a different beast now. Um, There and. I will preface this with saying this is my feeling and my belief and not the belief of Dungeons and Magi as a whole or Raven's Nest Dice as a whole, but law enforcement has been leashed. There there are so many limitations and restrictions and hoops for law enforcement to jump through that they're no longer effective. And you can look at any major city, any major department, they have become reactionary mm-hmm. instead of proactive. And that is a direct result of those limitations that have been placed on those officers. So, well, I think going along with that, why do you think law enforcement is important? Because without law enforcement, you, you have two results. You either have chaos because there's nobody to rein things in, or you have a militarized country. Because somebody has to try and maintain order somehow. That's why law enforcement was created hundreds and hundreds of years ago for that reason. There has to be some type of order. So, so, so he retired in 2008. Um, I left law enforcement. Ben, when did you leave law enforcement? Oh. What year did you discharge? Well, so honestly, for me, officially, it'd be about somewhere in 2016, because that's when I went in active reserve from the Air Force Reserve. But if we're really being honest, like for me, 2004, March 31st, 2014 was the last day I had an active duty Air Force. That's when I stopped going, responding to calls and, you know, being a presence out in the road down in South Carolina. So that's really when I ended, when I kind of hung up my uh, hung up my duty belt and just kind of said bye bye to law enforcement. And I did try to go into civilian, but I also did it right around the time just after uh, the incident with George Floyd and the BLM riots and everything. And the department started um, really their sphincter started going up, and they started really dissecting everybody. Essentially, essentially, if you were not a choir boy or girl, you weren't getting in. Yeah. And I don't have a checkered pass, but I also don't have a spotless. It's not spot like not in the terms of like disciplinary thing. It's just that if I if 2008, if I signed in, my god, they would have they would have just like just show up on Monday. But that's part of that. 
that transition time into what I referenced earlier, the, the whole um, nature and atmosphere of law enforcement basically did a 180 degree flip. Well, and that's, and that's where I was kind of going with this is, um, I am the most recent in law enforcement. I left in 2020, right before COVID hit. Um, and I was on the federal level at that point. Mm -hmm. And I saw growing up, of course, I'd come from what, five generations of law enforcement Um, so it's, uh, again, that you were born to do it thing. Um, and so I got to see this transition and we'll end this discussion here with you could not pay me a million dollars to be a cop anymore. No. No, no way. I it would without for me, without us getting too political. Yeah. Um, it, I and again, these are my all of our personal views. Those are not the views of Dungeon Magi as a whole, Ravens Nest Dice as a whole, the TTRBC community. Um, we obviously are very supportive of our LGBTQIA plus friends and all of that and support people using their second amendment rights and openly speaking. And it's what I joined the military to fight for. So we are all for that, Mm -hmm. but law enforcement is going downhill. Cities are going downhill. We've seen it in Atlanta. We've seen it multiple places with the cop walkouts where, it's just I remember that not, not I was shocked worth it. not worth it but um for me the only the only the only department I would even consider joining that's because I have just I really believe in their mission and I they have a very uh story uh legacy and tradition I still would be border patrol as the only well, department <sighs> right now I, and yes, I understand what's all going down there and all everything, but to me there to me that's like well, the crap I, is worth it. I was to me. I was actually somebody tried to convince me today while I was at work. Um <laughs> guy was uh he was a cop for twenty years and ended up uh ending as an air marshal. And he told me today, he goes, go into air marshal. They are hiring like crazy. You don't have to do shit except fly on a fucking plane. And he goes, now, if you don't like flying on planes, I said, sir, I jumped out of airplanes. He goes, oh yeah. But yeah, he said, he said that is the only law enforcement that's good right now is air marshal. Cause he has, I think it was a son or nephew doing it. Something like that who is an air marshal right now. And that's like the only good thing to do. And they are making six figures right now. Also, I've also heard that it's a very, it's very much a dead end job and it's, they, they, they're having to pay them because they're, everybody's just leaving. It's an easy job. 
But, yeah, but with that being said, um, we are going to, now that we have lost a few listeners from that. Um, I hope not. I, I, we I, are... I, we are going to well i like i liked i like to think that people are going to start listening to us because of our law enforcement experience and getting the law enforcement side of all of these things um so with this uh ben let's go ahead and continue into the other half of the haunting as well as digging into the glorious Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yes. Those guys. Um, may they rest in peace. They are actually now both dead. Let, no, oh. they don't need to rest in peace. Yeah. I hope they are haunted in their graves. <sighs> I don't think ghosts can be haunted. Um, For Ed and Lorraine Warren, I think it, they would make an exception. <laughs> so to recap the 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 story of the Amityville horror as it, as it is widely known begins with in 1974 with the murders of the DeFeo family in Amityville, Long Island, New York. Uh Ronnie DeFeo Jr would at three o'clock in the morning um kill his family with a uh a 336 shot, uh, caliber uh Marlin pump um, lever action shotgun, uh, one bullet for each of his siblings, two for both of his uh, parents. He then would go rush over to a local bar, which was in walking distance of the home, uh, Henry's bar, and he would proclaim his parents were shot, and they would go over there, and they would soon discover the full extent of it. Um, Ronnie DeFeo was kept in police custody for the night to for questioning, mostly because he had said he had indicated that his family was murdered by a member of the Italian mafia. Um, as they would very quickly discover, there was very much a lot of inconsistencies with the story. Biggest one being that the person that he named, uh, Louis, uh, what was his name again, Caleb? I, I can't pronounce it. Uh, oh. Finelli? It Felon. was... Second. Can't ever pronounce that. It was Louis uh, Fellini. Fellini, that's it. Sorry, Louis Fellini. Uh, biggest consistency was Louis Fellini was actually in Florida, being tailed by the FBI as part of an ongoing investigation into the uh, Italian mafia out of New York City. So right there, there was. Very good alibi. On top of that, uh, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. had also indicated, started inquiring, uh, not even less than 24 hours after the death of his family, how he could go about cashing in the life insurance policy for his family. Seeing as how he is. Concerned. Yeah. 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 yeah, Um, And one one of the things that he had eventually he eventually admitted it and saying that once he started it, he couldn't stop it. It happened so fast. And then he had finally said, Oh, I took a bath. I got redressed. He, he even told them where he discarded everything as bloodstained clothes, the Marlin rifle and cartridges, and then just went to work. 
Now, as we said, uh, for backstory was um, this has been corroborated on certain levels, but the DeFeo family was not a happy family. This was a family that was that Ronnie DeFeo Sr. Was, and to an extent, his wife, Lu Louise, was a very abusive toward the children, especially uh, Ronnie Jr., since uh, he was the oldest. This led to him developing a severe uh, heroin and alcohol addiction in order to cope with the years of traumatic abuse and emotional and physical. Um, again, it's important to note a lot of these, this is coming from Ronnie Jr. Not to say he's lying. It's I mean, just, I mean, I was beat as a child, but I never, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's never going to let him go. Aaron. But wow. I never developed a drug habit. Wow! No, you just developed. You just developed never, a few. T and D. Why he was beaten as a child? I was a perfect kid. I I I am already <laughs> calling bullshit on that. Joking on the chicken. It's not the first time. Uh -huh. Don't you know? Don't you know you go blind if you do that? Um, um. So it is noted to that. So. Coupled with that, um, and the fact that this was done at three o'clock in the morning, it's easy to say. And his al and Ronnie DeFeo's story consistently changed over there during trial, after incarceration, which he was, he did confess to the police. He was sentenced to six years, or not sorry, six years, six consecutive life sentences. And she couldn't even. Well, he wasn't even good enough to make it through one. Yeah. Yeah, died at 69 years old. He actually in 2021, um, all up until the day he died, all appeals and attempts at parole, humanitarian release were all denied. Um, he would at one point he did can he did try to say the de essentially the devil made me do it. There was some kind of uh, demonic possession, and but like many of his other stories, this, this was disregarded and just ignored um i don't think we'll ever really know why i mean we know we could we can make a case of why he killed his parents why did he kill his siblings i um, i think obviously he killed his parents because they were abusive he had finally had enough and killed them i think we see it a lot with rage killings like this. I, I think that to be honest, I don't think he originally intended to kill his siblings. I think what happened is he drugged his siblings to keep them asleep while he killed his parents so that they didn't have to witness it. And then that rage just took over so much. And it was, well, Dawn, who's 18, why is she not defended me? I'm the one that's abused the most. Uh, they they got good treatment. Boom, kill her. Allison, she's 13. She never got abused as much as I did. She's the better kid. Boom. Same thing. Mark, John, just... It was, it was this just downhill spiral of... I'm the only one that had to suffer. Why did they not have to suffer? So now they're going to suffer by me killing them and over the course of years many people have um 
brought forth theories as to it. Again, also to note, every attempt that some of these uh, theorists tried to actually talk to the source, he would he was very tight-lipped about it. He, after a while, he just stopped. When it became very clear, I think the appeals were very half-hearted attempts. Um, one of the, the one theory was that it was a murder-suicide pact with him and his his sister Dawn, who was eighteen. And this it may it it makes sense to a point, but then where's the other gun? The idea was is that J Ronnie DeFeo Ronnie DeFeo Jr. killed the parents, Dawn killed the siblings, and then at the end, Dawn just lay down in the bed to be killed by her brother. Ronnie was supposed to kill himself, but he cowered out at the last I, minute. I don't buy that. I you also gotta think that this dude's a meth head. Yeah. He he could have been strung out. Could have been on a bender, and that also plays a part, especially if you mix meth and alcohol, along with being angry at his parents. That's just going to make him go insane. I, trust me. I have fought guys who were high on meth. Oh, yeah. They, I had a guy who was six foot seven, like 300 pounds, butt ass naked in the middle of the street, high on meth. And we tased him seven times and he never went down. We had, when I was stationed in Germany, we had, I didn't participate in this. Uh, to this day, I regret it because it sounded like it was a good old time of a slobberknocker brawl. Uh, a homeless Vietnam veteran had actually somehow saved enough money to take a Class A, a Space A trip to Germany and get himself about a month's worth of, uh, what was it, uh, like a room in the hotel. But he just stayed there until we, we were notified. We had to kick him out. It took six of us. took six of the members of my flight to take him down oh, we eventually had to get Vietnam flashbacks i apparently we they according to what i was hearing on the radio and what i heard it started off as two patrols saying come on get out he wouldn't go he started barricading himself more patrols came in and got to about six people bust the door he just came barreling out started fighting through the hallway canine had to be brought in and once he saw the dog he was like i give up <laughs> so yeah it um, a lot of fuel and rage can 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 do oh, yeah. can make people do crazy crazy things. I also don't really believe the the F theory as well, simply because where's the other gun? Exactly. He and... he, he 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 showed we found everything else, but oh my god, we can't find that. It's like, dude, yeah. you're confessing to everything and, else. Why not? And a murder suicide. You're you're gonna use two guns. You're not gonna drug them beforehand because you're planning on killing everybody anyways. So, it, his stories are just inconsistent. Um, I think the simple solution is for this one is simply that he went on the fuel bent. He went on a he went on a drug and alcohol bender. Everything just builds, and the crescendo was he just somehow slipped everybody snapped. something, and he killed them. Yeah. Or oh, and um, with that, after about thirteen months after these murders occurred we entered the Lutz family, which is the beginning, really the beginning of the, the Holly, the I am a devil horror, which would spawn the, these 
movie franchise that folks watch the too long. Yeah, watch the first film, the nineteen seventy nine film. It's a great film. Ryan Reynolds, if you want to come onto our show to talk about Amityville Horror. I will, I will give you shit for being in that film. Though. I will gladly, I will have gladly accept you into this. And if you want to play D&D with us, too, that'd be cool. Um, or I, will just, have to, I will have to DM because Caleb will be fangirling or just, or just Ryan us, all day. Or just send us some aviation gin. Just saying. <laughs> I'm not a gin drinker, but I'll drink anything Ryan gives to me. Just saying. I could take that so many different ways. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> me, too. <laughs> um, it is Ryan so, Reynolds. I mean, come on. Every, every man, yeah. every man has a man crush on Ryan Reynolds. I mean, I guess it wouldn't be considered yeah. gay if it's Ryan Reynolds. Exactly. Um. So uh, back on topic. So thirteen months after um the of the murders, once the case is cleared, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. has gone to prison. Um, the Lutzes move into the into eleven one one two Ocean Avenue. The address of it, I can say that it's listed on Wikipedia, I, so it's not. I'm not doxing uh, anybody. I would always remember that address one one two Ocean Avenue. Um, that, from what I what I've still, read, and what, does it still exist? Oh, it still exists. The house exists. It's been completely renovated, so most people actually, from what I hear, people who've gone there thinking they're going to see the, the big menacing front facade of the house with the glaring like lights on the thing glaring down at you, that's all gone. The house, I'm told, back in like the early 2000s was bought by a new owner. It was done. He, I guess he had like stupid amount of money. He just completely Not really. I mean, it. it- the, it's still caught if you look well, at the, it. The guy that bought it after that, his name was David D'Antonio. He was a teacher. He was a Massapequa school district teacher. Huh? Um, I think it paid a lot of money. But he died. He died in 2015. Um, All I know, when I remember, somebody bought the house at some point and did a complete remodel of it, so the house looks nothing like it did from the 70s. They also oh. let's see, they changed. Um, they changed the address to one hundred eight Ocean Avenue to deter tourists. Clever, but not clever enough. <laughs> that's that's like, I I don't I, I, so okay like, so how about like. They'll never figure it out. What'd you change it to? One, no, eight. Um, So they, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll post pictures of the house then and now. Um, But the last property records was that it was sold in 2017 for $605,000. That is, from what I understand of Long Island real estate, and I will actually confirm with, that's very cheap. Um, Um, And, the people have like the New York Post tried to reach out to the current owners, but they no, had nothing they to do with it. And I, I frankly don't blame them. But yeah, so, we'll we'll post pictures of both the before and afters. Um, like I said, the house from the seventies looks damn it looks creepy as hell. It really does. They, um, so thirteen months after, like I said, thirteen months after the Lutzes move in, 
interestingly enough, they actually still have the DeFeo's furniture. They actually paid extra to have the furniture stayed there. Part of the deal. Why? No idea. Um, soon after they start moving in, um, George Lutz, who is a was a lap. Both George and Kathy Lutz were laps. Methodist and Catholic perspective, uh, perspectively. Um, but Kathy wa- insisted on having the house blessed by a priest. This was actually very common back in the day with Catholic Catholic households to have a priest, the local parish priest, um, blessed. Now, Father Mancuso, who is, uh, I actually found out that is not his real name, that Mancuso is, was just a, it was made a, up. It was a pseudonym so that they didn't reveal the, uh, Ed, you'll notice when we, especially when we talk about Ed Lorraine Warren, they do that a lot to protect the uh, people. The, Le- yeah. the the only reason we know the Lutz's names is because they put their names in the book. Yeah, they made the they wrote the book themselves because so they wanted they the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so Father Mancuso would go to the house and he would start blessing the various rooms, and as he got to the second floor room, which um. He didn't know this, but at the time it would turn. It would later be found out this was uh, Mark and the two youngest boys' room. It and as was he's Mark and John. John, Mark and John, yeah, Mark and John's room. Um, he starts blessing the hot the the room, and suddenly, and uh, Aaron, if you've seen the movie, if anyone's seen the movie, this is where the flies show up, and they he's like in this weird state, and he's like, get out. So Father Mancuso leaves. Uh, interestingly, he didn't tell the Lutzes that this has happened. He just nope the fuck out of there. Pretty much. Um, eventually, he tried again, and he he again same thing. Get out! And he get out, and then when he he called them saying, "I got some very very bad," to you he didn't say this, but the bad vibes from this. Uh, from that room and when she when he he was very concerned about who was going to be in that room and kathy let said well i'm just making the sewing room he's like oh thank god nobody's gonna be sleeping in there oh thank god like, only, only sewing needles will be in there in the haunted room yes yeah and a room that you're going to sit in for hours on end while you're sewing stuff with a fucking sewing machine sticking your hands near needles that are moving really quickly no I can deal, tell you, though. yeah. I, I, my mother-in-law has a sewing room. I can tell you, some of those machines scare the hell out of me. Oh, yeah. Pam, my my wife Pam actually has a bunch of sewing stuff. She's actually very skilled at sewing. Yeah, I know how to sew. Um, I don't. <laughs> I, I was very, I was very popular in uh, basic training when when oh. I knew, when I knew how to stitch up all of their all everybody's stuff. They paid me if, to do it. I was about to say, did you charge? Oh yeah, I oh. charged for it. And okay, I was, I was sewing my hand too. You can, you can thank your pop for that. I I I charged way overcharged what the BX was going to charge them. But everybody they, does. But they they didn't want to go all the way down to the BX. Nobody ever does. <laughs> um. So after the second incident of the blessing, this is when the paranormal activity even. Different movie. By, um, <laughs> decent movie. Um, first one. First one was good. Um, George and Kathy would also say that they, at first, nothing, nothing really happened. Everything was fine. The house was 
they considered the house uh, their dream home. Um, they were aware of the the murders that had taken place, but they felt that they could actually make it a happy home again. That's actually um, they actually had posted a sign that they made uh, that George had made that said "High Hopes," and that was uh, what they called the home. Um, I think so, uh, high hopes happened during that murder. <laughs> yes. God. Oh, the gallows humor. It's so wonderful. <laughs> um, so, it's but... For. <laughs> soon after, um, after the second blessing, the activity did start to ramp up. Um... George and Kathy, Kathy would uh, started noticing that something strange was um, starting to touch her hand, and they couldn't explain it. Uh, the flies, the in the swarm in the sewing room, and I believe somewhere else, another room they never specified what other room was a constant thing. They say that this they were becoming infested with flies. No matter what they did, they fumigated, they killed them. They just kept coming back. Um, eventually, uh, it seemed like um, auditory and visual hallucinations started happening. They started complaining of being uh, a lot, being aged mentally and physically. According to George, at one point, they were just kind of sitting on the couch relaxing and he started noticing his wife was like visibly aging in front of him to the point where she was like she had the the, the vestige of an old woman and there's and he kept seeing this for like hours on top of it sounds like it a very leak. It, it, it as somebody who also used to work in the gas industry as a meter reader and right? had to like ident identify <laughs> leaks it's, it's like I very much would like to check your gas pipe. Yeah, so this, like this doesn't sound right. So gas leak. I mean, you're getting you're getting carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, same same thing that happens if you start a car in a garage, keep the garage door closed. Same thing. Um, the onsets of it are, of course, hallucinations. It starts restricting the blood flow to your brain which then you're going to start getting auditory and visual hallucinations. Um, this house was built in 1923, I believe. Um, yes. So um, it's a very old house. Even at this point, it's 50 years old. And I can tell you, I don't know what the piping and the, the layout of that area in Long Island is. Um, I know the company, the gas company I worked for did not go out that way. Another company did. I can just tell you, industry standards back in the 70s everything was iron yeah iron rots even back then yeah and the gas industry has been around for since the late 1800s Which, so and it those, assuming there's natural gas there or, those, or something else those iron those irons leaked a lot they, they still leak yeah well <laughs> mo leaking. most places are getting away from oh yeah that. they're everything now it's all plastic. Yeah, it's all plastic. Um, but that iron would leak a lot. Um, I would say even the flies are probably maybe a hallucination, or it was a combination of a hallucination and maybe they had a septic leak somewhere or something like that, so they were seeing flies from there. Maybe they just weren't the most clean people and were seeing or flies from they there. Uh, another explanation is they made it up. 
and that's, Again, and that's the thing. Like, I, we said this last week, and I firmly believe in ghosts. We all here believe in ghosts. We've all, I believe everybody here has seen them at some point. I have. I've had experiences and feelings. I've never um, seen a physical manist- manifestation, but I've had encounters that I definitely can't, I can't yeah. explain. And so that putting that out there we're not discrediting that this house isn't haunted it very well could be it's an old house killings happen there i don't believe a single fucking word that these people have said i think they were broke they bought a house for eighty thousand dollars it was a steal they obviously were hurting for money because they wanted all of the furniture still in there. Now, this house, again, this house was, I believe, what, a five-bedroom, four-bathroom house. It yes. had it had a boathouse right on the river, and like it was This was not a suburban this was not a suburban development yeah, hall. It, now it is. Yeah. Now it is an actual development build up thing but at the time if you if anybody's actually seen the movie you see they have the boathouse they yeah. have a tree this is Which the boathouse is, is actually torn down now but yeah this this was not i, I don't want to say it's, it's not a rural place by any means but this is like i guess what i that's like it's suburban rural yeah you have I, a nice piece of property it's a it's not real off it's a little bit off this the beaten kind of set back a ways the driveway is a little is a little elongated um now this is where also some people who defend the Lutzes came in. The Lutzes had while yes, they did buy this at a steal, by the time they left, they hadn't actually made a mortgage payment. And what we would find out according to one of the lawyers, I believe one of the Lutzes lawyers, and by one of the Lutzes children, who's now an adult, would say that it was a hoax. A lot of it was a lot of what happened, what came into the book was born out of a very late night brainstorming session from uh, quite a few bottles of wine. Oh yeah. This to me and the fact now one of the things that that is that is an argument against the money thing is how much money they actually made from this book. So is does sound like by all accounts from an outsider point of view, they just made this up to sell a book to get a movie right, which actually did happen. But based, I think, by Judge George Lutz's account, by his own, you know, like interview and testimony after the lawyer's fees and everything like that, he only ever saw like just under $300,000. The Amityville, the 1979 Amityville horror film would go on to gross $86 million. So either George, which it's still a possibility, but either George Ludge is a really bad businessman and doesn't know how to get his copyright and royalties down, or this did, maybe maybe there is something to this. Now, I, I firmly believe Ronnie DeFeo did not murder his family because the devil made him do it. He was not possessed. That that is the one thing that I mean, unless we call heroin and drug and alcohol addiction in a, in 
severe abuse a demon, then yeah, I'll get, okay, yeah, yes, he's a demon. It's demonic possession. I think what we would later find out, um, at, again, as the years progress, the, the Lutz's claims have gotten more crazy. Daniel Lutz, the one of the sons of the Lutz family, he when he as an adult he was he said he wasn't allowed to tell his side of the story because he was a nine year old kid. Um, he would say that at one point, him and his brother, I think either his brother or his sister, were in a bed. One of the last incidents they said that was too frightening to talk about. It's very interesting in the movie. We see them. Aaron, you've seen the movie, right? Mm-hmm. So you remember the scene where they're leaving the night they leave and they run, they're running out of the house in their pajamas. They just grab the dog, grab the shit, grab the dog, and they just got in the car and drove away and they never, and they never left. Mm-hmm. All of that is just speculation. The Lutzes never said what in the book, they never said what happened. They just said, Oh, we had to leave. Everything got so bad. What happened? Oh, it's too frightening. We can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Also, side note: when the Lutzes sent the movers to pack their stuff up, because the movie and the books make a big deal about how they left all their worldly possessions, just ran from the house and never returned. What they don't tell you is that they send a bunch of other people in there. Hey, can you go get our stuff? We're too scared to go back into our home. Um, the movers went in and got their stuff, and nothing happened. No activity. Uh, Daniel uh, Lutz would also speak about one of his experiences in there. He would see a what was called a demon pig. And this is not like a giant demon boar, which actually would be pretty cool if you saw that. I'm not going to lie. As scary as that is, I think a demon boar would be kind of cool to see. Now, he described this as like a cartoon porky pig type um demon like like a cartoon looking except it had the he said the teeth of a wolf sounds like my ex-wife <sighs> no judgment <laughs> um but one uh again and now after the after they've left one of the lutzes started opening their home up to investigations a team, a plethora of psychics, mediums, and paranormal investigators, and even the local news crew would show up. Enter the Warrens. This is when the Warrens. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. This is actually the, the one of the, is the cases that would actually make the Warrens a bit of a household name. Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were. Um, self-taught demonologists and paranormal investigators from New England. They'd actually found the New England Psychic Society, I believe it's called. Yeah. Um, they've been, they for years, they've written books, articles, given ticketed events and, and paid lecture tours, uh, speaking on their um, investigations into the paranormal, more or less invited themselves over um, and concluded, Ed concluded that there was a evil, that while there also was many spirits roaming the house, they would, they also dis- determined that there was an evil, malevolent force at work in the home. They sound like Zach Baggins. 
I wonder where he got his ideas from. <laughs> if Zach Baggins hears this, I don't care. I don't care either. He's a dick. From, from everything I've heard, people that worked on the show and worked with him said everybody else is great. Zach Baggins is a fraud and a dick. The guy who's bald with the like the goatee, yeah. I forget his name. He's actually funny. I like him. He he's good. Yeah, he I love like I love everybody else, but Zach Baggins, I can't watch it because now it's just. I used to love the show. Like he and I would sit there and watch it all day, and then it came out that Zach Baggins was faking stuff. And I was like, Nope, I'm good. I'm done. I'd, I'd rather watch people that aren't faking it. If I, At if least- I listen, if I want to watch something where somebody's faking it, I'll watch porn. Like, <laughs> God. <laughs> Oh God. Wait, you mean that's not real? Depends on Next thing you're going to tell me that the strippers, the strippers don't actually like me. Why would no, they? No, they love you then. Mm. Especially, especially that one-legged one. <laughs> she she retired though. She works at IHOP now. <laughs> oh my god! Um, so Ed and Lorraine, Ed and Lorraine Warren again, like I said, would investigate the Amityville um, in, uh, occurrences with the Lutzes. Uh, Ed very quickly concluded that there was a demonic forces, and that the demonic forces, those that same demonic entity was responsible for possessing and, and driving um, Ronnie, Ronnie Jr. to murder his family. Uh, the Warren's uh, photographer that they brought there, you can look this up, actually snapped what is now an actually very infamous photo of like a small boy um, that's kind of like peering through a doorway in the, in the home at them. Oh, um, so you mean the Lutz's boy that got caught in a photograph negative that's exactly what it is uh we'll, we'll, we'll post we'll post a picture of that one yeah i I, that, I i've seen it and it's exactly what it looks like it looks like it was a negative from them taking a picture of the lutz's child and saying oh because negatives especially back then negatives had that really transparent look to it and Plus, it does look creepy as hell. Yeah, and that's like, he did, that's like his eyes are glowing. And you that's don't how see a lot anything. of it was faked. A lot of it was faked by using transparents, by using negatives. Um, yeah, many hardcore believers in the Warrens and in paranormal said that this is possibly the ghost of John DeFeo, the youngest child. Uh, in fairness, I mean, kind of looks like him, but then again, like you said, it's a negative. It's not clearest picture i don't th- i mean it kind of, i guess all little kids kind of look alike in this instance but um i i mean i don't i don't believe like i said i don't believe if that place is haunted. i mean i'm sure maybe now it's haunted because you know six people were murdered there but well, um, i i plus then you also have like that whole tulpa thing for those that don't know what a tulpa is, do you know what a tulpa is, Ben? I actually do not. So, it sounds like something from Supernatural, though. Uh, well, it's something from lore. Yes, it is. It is touched on in Supernatural, but a tulpa is something that comes to life when people think about it. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, people believe that the Mothman and Injured Cold uh, are both tulpas because. The story, um, 
what was what was that really creepy girl with the big smile and the big eyes that went around like it was on like YouTube for kids and all of that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that, it was supposed to be a promo for um, Smile. The, yeah, the movie. so that was um, people said that that was a tulpa that this thing never actually existed. One person posted about it and then more people believed it and more people believed it. And the thing with the Tulpa is the more you believe it brings it to life. It feeds on those beliefs. Well, then we're all screwed because you know how many people believe in Slender Man? Yeah. I was just going to say, same thing. Oh, well, and that's Slender Man is believed to be a Tulpa. Yeah. Yeah. I hate Slender Man mostly because we, I know the origins of Slender Man and it's just like, please just let it end. We will definitely touch on Tulpas. Because they, uh, are, they are yes. very interesting. I'll let you deal with that. Um, so, Ed and Lorraine, Lauren, again, would investigate this. They would determine that this was this there was a demonic presence there. Um, they had to capture the photo of the you know the quote unquote demon child. Um, interesting again. Interesting enough, nobody else found this any evidence of this the news crew the cha- the tv news crew that was there brought their cameras and equipment and anything never experienced everything subsequent owners from before the lutzes and that's not including the defeos who were still alive at the time never never encountered any incidents many claims by the lutzes of a uh, of things that happened have been refuted uh, one of the inc- one of the claims that that the property of uh, 112 Ocean Avenue, I'm sorry, 108 Ocean Avenue, uh, was that area was used by the um, Native Americans that were native to Long Island and Manhattan. Native American burial ground. That is the go-to for all hauntings. When you want to make up a haunting, it's because it was on a Native burial ground. So that, uh, you're telling me that that little boy was a little Native American child. I highly no. doubt it. No, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. No, the uh, the case, the case, the what the what the Lutzes um, claimed was that the Native tribe again na- burial ground. This is this is an area where Native Americans, the local tribe, would drop off their dead, their very infirm and elderly and mentally ill to die. This has been. This is obviously not true. The local reservation of the Native Americans who lived in the areas obviously said, "No, we didn't do that. There's no evidence that it, nobody that was a, this was a consecrated ground of any kind." Basically, like you said, stop blaming us for your hauntings. Um, one of the other claims was that there were cloven hooves in the snow around the Lutz's house. Never mind that the meteorological reports show that there was never any snow there during their time there. Um, more or less, my, my opinion on this situation is this was a made-up incident. This was somebody, the, the Lutz's, a lawyer friend, all were sitting around one night drinking, maybe smoking the weed. They did that back then. Um, and they all got on their idea, hey, how can we make some extra cash? Hey, I know. Wasn't some, didn't some guy kill his family here? Yeah, I know. I still got his stuff. Write a scary story. 
get it sold. Everyone's making horror films. And it just grew out of this. Um, now, obviously, there's some very ethical, legal, ethical concerns here. Where, you know, a lawyer advising your, their clients to make up a story to sell, um, you know, sell to sell and make money off of. Yeah. Well, anybody who's a lawyer out there, just leave that to the literary agents. They're literally paid to make up lies. Um, and of course, the Warren showing up and kind of a quote that would really follow them throughout their whole careers. Ed and Lorraine Warren never found a house that they didn't say was haunted, despite all contrary, all evidence to the contrary. Um, I would say the biggest takeaway from this is, and, and this is a serious note. Ronnie DeFeo, I do believe, was abused. Possibly his his siblings were abused very severely. Say something if you find this area. I again, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know the whole intimate story of Ronnie DeFeo, of what happened, but I'm sure there were signs of severe abuse. His drug and alcohol habits were not a secret. This was not a dirty secret that was hidden under the rug. Ron, this people who do these these self medicating measures do it as a cry for help. Oh, if he's, yeah. may, may, maybe if somebody had seen this and said something, maybe Ronnie DeFeo Jr. And I, I speculate because again. We won't know the true motive of why Ronnie DeFeo killed his family. I suspect that even Ronnie DeFeo Jr. didn't even really know. Not really. It probably had been so buried deep and twisted by his, his addiction and his inner demons that I'm sure he didn't even really know why he was doing it other than he just needed to do it. Um, maybe if somebody had caught this early on, Ronnie DeFeo, I mean, he probably, he might be, depending on why he died, he might actually be dead already. But still, he would have, he would not have spent his his best years in prison. His siblings would probably still be alive today. Oh no. Um, if you see abuse, say something. Yeah. Stop, stop tragedies like this. Stop tragedies like this um, from from happening. And going on to that. Um... I'm gonna, and we may do an entire episode where we share cop stories and stuff like that because they're fun to do. It's it's fun to sit around with cops and share some stories. All of us have funny stories, um, but in the in that whole thing with abuse, and then you deal with mental health as well. Um, we are major advocates of mental health. All of us have suffered with some type of mental health issues, PTSD, depression, things like that. Um, especially coming from military and law enforcement, you deal with that a lot. Um, and of course that's not negating anybody else who wasn't in military and law enforcement that does deal with that. Um, but a quick little story to kind of seal in how important it is to get help when you need it is 
my first call ever as a law enforcement officer. Um, I was working on base and got a call of a shots fired. Uh, we roll up, my partner and I roll up to the house. Uh, wife is outside covered in blood, uh, curled over. We check her. She's not hurt. Um, husband is in the doorway holding a shotgun. Um, we have my gunpoint, tell him to put it down, finally get him compliant, handcuff him. Uh, we make our way to clear the house as is protocol and lights were out. So we're making our way. And of course you don't want to turn the lights on when you're trying to clear your house. Cause that's telling everybody where you are. Um, and we take a step into a room and my boots stick to the ground and I turn the light on, look down and there is blood everywhere. I look around and I see a little girl's room and I look on the bed and find their six year old daughter. The father had just gotten back from a deployment, was dealing with serious mental health issues. We are told as men, especially that we always have to be okay that we're not allowed to feel anything, that we are not allowed to hurt and be scared and do all of that stuff. That's not the case anymore. Yeah. This man found himself back in Afghanistan, had a flashback. His daughter ran at him while he had a flashback. And he shot and killed her. And popped out of the flashback afterwards and had no idea what to do all because he did not get help when it was needed. Mm-hmm. I say all of that to kind of seal it in everybody's brains to get help. Uh, one of the things with law enforcement is, if you see something, say something. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not just for other people. That's for yourself. If um, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Uh, a month or so ago, I had a really bad case of depression. And I went and told my dad. I told Ben. I told his wife, Pam. Hey, this is bad. I need you guys to check in on me every single day. And they did. Um, it, they made sure I was okay every single day. Um, so just remember mental health, drugs, alcohol are not the answer. No. Medication isn't always the answer either. Sometimes it makes it worse. But talking helps. Um, 
you can call the there is a national suicide hotline please use it uh that is 1-800-273-8255 you can also even text somebody which is really cool a lot of people get anxiety over the phone Um, you can now text somebody if you text uh send a text to 838255 it'll connect with a actually a VA responder um and please reach out get help if you feel that you can't talk to them our inboxes are always open always reach out mm-hmm. to us we will talk to you we will help you we've all been there uh if we haven't been in your situation i'm sure somebody else in dungeons and magi have uh we have a broad range of characters in our business that have dealt with a lot of things so please 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 get help if you need it don't don't end up like the defeos um yeah but yes but with that being said um we want to thank everybody for joining us um next two episodes are going to be alien abductions not saying it's aliens but it's definitely aliens that's going on the t-shirt i swear to god that's gonna that's gonna be the intro um so yeah we will be doing some alien abductions some fun stuff uh whether people believe them or not they're fun um and then we're probably going to do some hard-hitting stuff so um i know we have please a few, stay tuned we have a few three four parters coming up so uh with that We want to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and always tip the bard. Have a good night, everybody. Night.